0: The demilitarized zone on the Korean Peninsula is arguably the most tense place in the entire world. While inside, weapons and aggression are not allowed, but the miles around each side of the 150-mile-long DMZ is the most heavily fortified border in the world. And that one's not arguably. That's definitively. We know next to nothing about what goes on in the demilitarized zone, and even less of the country to its north. So what happens in the notorious demilitarized zone? What do the North Korean and American and South Korean militaries do as they stand in an area reclaimed by nature, trying to keep a war at bay? And what would happen if they stopped just watching and took action? In such a tense situation, could a small action like, say, pruning a tree, upset the precarious balance? In the demilitarized zone of North and South Korea... Can a tree start a war? Welcome to Time Capsule Tales, a haven for those unsung heroes, the overlooked events, the forgotten wars, and the hidden secrets of ancient civilizations. With me, Jessa Briggs, we'll unseal the time capsule and embark on a journey scouring the nooks and crannies of the past. Today's is the story of axe murder and mayhem, of two countries showing off their might to the other. It's a story of territory and terror, and a tree that was planted in just the wrong spot. Today is the story of Operation Paul Bunyan. But first, some background. For the pressure of this story to really settle in, we need to know what the Demilitarized Zone, or the DMZ, is. So the DMZ was formed as part of the Korean Armistice Agreement, the military document that brought the Korean War to an end in 1953. Archive.gov says that, quote, The Korean Armistice Agreement is somewhat exceptional in that it is purely a military document. No nation is a signatory to the agreement, unquote. What this means is that the warring militaries had agreed to a ceasefire, but the governments themselves are not working towards normalizing relations. So this is different than a peace treaty because it's not technically supposed to live for a long time. It's supposed to be the first step to ending a conflict, not the final, not the final step or the resolution. But in 2023, we're 70 years removed from the end of the Korean War and the signing of this Korean Armistice Agreement, and no permanent agreement has ever been made between North and South Korea and no actions toward rev- resolution or better relations have been made between the new countries. Anyways, I could and just might do a whole episode about the Korean Armistice Agreement because it's super fascinating. But for today, know that it's a document that quote-unquote ended the Korean War. It caused a ceasefire in 1953 and established the demilitarized zone. And the geography of the DMZ is really well established because of the Armistice Agreement. It's actually in the agreement that the whole demarc- demarcation line, which is the literal line that separates North and South Korea, and the DMZ are clearly marked on both sides by both sides. Um, so like I said, the demarcation line is the actual line that splits North and South Korea. And so go take a look at the Instagram time pod to see some maps and pictures of how this lays out because it's kind of hard to really understand until you see it. It's also really interesting to see it on Google Maps because Google Maps has different lines for different types of barriers. I don't I I learned about all of them at one point. I don't remember them all, but I think like a solid black line is a clearly defined um internationally recognized border, right? And then if you look at the border between North and South Korea, it's actually a dashed line. And that's because it's not technically like an official country border. It's super fascinating. And there is a link to the um, Google Maps like coordinates of the Joint Security Area, which we'll talk about in a second. But either way, look at that because it's really fascinating. So the DMZ is 2 kilometers or 1.2 miles on each side of the demarcation line. So that means for two miles on either side of the border of North and South Korea, there is there can be no military action um from either side. But so goes across the whole peninsula, which is about 150 miles, and I mean hor- like horizontally. It it Splits it in half. Right. So history.com referred to the DMZ as quote, one of the most pristine undeveloped areas in Asia, unquote, because it's been mostly reclaimed by nature since 1953. It is actually now like a refuge for wildlife. There's like, I think I, I read something like 107 different birds that migrate there. So it really, it really has become like a wildlife preserve in the DMZ. And so the joint security area which is now actually a tourist attraction, is the only sort of settlement inside the DMZ. It was the site for all negotiations between the two sides, and it is also the only place that the two sides come face-to-face. It's a small camp on the west side of the peninsula, about 50 kilometers north of South Korea's capital, Seoul, Inside the GSA, though the demarcation line does run through the circular camp, it was the one place on the entirety of the Korean Peninsula where free movement was allowed. So anyone in the GSA, no matter what side they belonged to, were allowed anywhere inside the GSA. That, that meant that the, inside the GSA was the only place that North Korean forces and American and or South Korean forces intermingled. So again, go take a look at the photos on Instagram so that you can really visualize what the space looks like, because I also have a map of the GSA as it was laid out in 1976. And you can see where the demarcation line runs through it and also where the site of today's story takes place, because the joint security area is the stage for most of our troubles today. DMZ was literally established as a buffer zone. That's literally what it's called in the original Korean agreement armistice document. It was meant to keep North and South Korea just separate enough that fighting wouldn't resume at their borders and respark the war. Because I believe that's how I didn't I didn't write it down, I should have, but I believe that's how the Korean War actually started, is that there was a lot of issues right at that splitting line, and that turned the whole peninsula into a war zone. So anyway, the DMZ was meant to stop that from happening, and it was also meant to be controlled by the Military Armistice Commission, also established by the Korean Armistice Agreement. I don't know if that's the language that they still use today, because I know that the UN command also seems to have control of the GSA, um, and is kind of in charge of keeping the peace there, and I believe that it has the same definition as the Military Armistice Commission. But please let me know if I'm wrong on that. So whether it's the Korean Armistice Agreement or the UNC, the United Nations Command, the DMZ is patrolled by the North Korean Army, or I think it's the Korean People's Army, I think is what they call themselves, and a joint American-South Korean group. The Military Armistice Commission is made up of five senior officers from each side, making 10 military officials in total. And then, along with like a cler- clerical and administrative support, 10 joint observer teams were established within the Military Armistice Commission. And the four to six person teams were also split down the middle. So, half the people from the North Korean side and half from the South Korean side. The Korean Armistice Agreement established the Military Armistice Commission's. General mission as, quote, to supervise the implementation of this armistice agreement and to settle through negotiations, any violence of this armistice agreement, unquote. So in the buffer zone between North and South Korea, the Military Armistice Commission was slash is the ruling party they are the only people allowed inside and it's half and half of each side their main goal is to contain the peace and inspect any possible breaks of the armistice not only within the gsa but within the demilitarized zone as a whole so the joint observer teams were created to help spot any deviations from the agreement and there are observation posts set throughout the dmz but even this teeny tiny amount of approved people allowed to patrol in the DMZ, they are not allowed to pass the demarcation line. So a North Korean cannot pass into this into South Korea, and a South Korean cannot pass into North Korea, even if you are a part of the Military Armistice Commission. Unless previous to our story, you were in the GSA zone. And there is one way to cross which we will get to a little bit later, and it's called the Bridge of No Return. So that's what's going on inside the DMZ officially. And as you can tell, it is an incredible tense sliver of Earth. But as tense as the situation is, there's actually very little confrontation in the DMZ, or at least like large-scale confrontation. In some of my sources, I don't think it actually made it in later in the document, but it does seem like North Korea kind of liked to beat up on South Korean and American soldiers within the GSA. And there were definitely a couple incidents that kind of sparked some uh, fear that they, that it would escalate. But overall, the DMZ doesn't have a whole lot of confrontation. And perhaps that's because of the strict rules of who and what are allowed in. Or perhaps it's because everyone knows how catastrophic another Korean war or I guess, should we say, a resumption of the, of the Korean War would be. Uh, but, but little confrontation or not, like I said, there have been some confrontations within the demilitarized zone of the Korean peninsula. And we're going to talk about one today, or technically two. It depends on whether or not you want to look at today's events as separate or conjoined. Part one is the 1976 Korean axe-killing incident. Sorry, there's not really a way to bury the lead, when it's literally called the axe killing incident. Uh, So yes, two people were killed inside the demilitarized zone on August 18th, 1976. Let's get into it. We are inside the joint security area inside the demilitarized zone. In the 1976 version of this camp, a 98-foot poplar tree rose towards the sky. Its huge branches interfered with a UN command checkpoint and a separate observation post. Because of its compromising position, the poplar tree had been the site of quite a few skirmishes within the GSA between the North Korean and South Korean-American forces. It seems like an easy agreement to trim the tree so that observation posts weren't compromised, right? But it's been rumored that the poplar tree was planted by Kim Il-sung, who was the North Korean president at the time. From what I've read, it seems like the rumor, and I say rumor because I couldn't find confirmation anywhere that Kim Il-sung actually planted the tree, and most of the sources also refer to the idea as a rumor. So regardless, I think this rumor was used by North Korean officers within the GSA to cause contention and, as we'll see, maybe even be a display of power. The tree was also close to the bridge of no return. At the time, the bridge of no return was like the only acceptable crossing area between North and South Korea, and the demarcation line ran right through the middle of the bridge. I think I'd like to do a whole other episode about the creation of the DMZ and all its complex rules sometime. Because it's really fascinating. And I'd like to do a history of the Bridge of No Return. But for now, we'll call the simple explanation good. Like, this is the only official crossing between the two countries. And really, still nobody should be crossing the demarcation line, right? Inside the neutral camp, the joint security area, and close to the only real crossing path between North and South Korea is this 98 foot poplar tree. There had been issues in the last couple decades of North Koreans holding American soldiers captives, and then uh, and other issues with a limiting view. So, by August 18th, 1976, a work party of about 15 South Korean and American officers and soldiers were tasked with trimming this tree. North Korean officials were told of this work in advance, and it even seems that they gave their assent to have this tree trimmed. However, when the United Nations Command work Party started their work that morning, a similarly sized group of North Korean forces came up to the South Korean American Work Party and demanded that they stopped trimming the tree. Some sources say that the North Koreans justified their demands with the fact that the tree was planted by their leader, but some didn't specify at all why the North Koreans had such an issue with the tree trimming. I did read a memorandum from the... Washington Special Actions Group meeting from August 18th, 1976. And we'll go um, into the details of that meeting a little bit later. But for now, uh, in this memorandum, a general speculated that the North Korean officers were given permission to pose an attack against the other side within the GSA if they ever found a vulnerable moment. And so this memo presumes that the North Korean intentions were to spark an overreaction from American forces and therefore boost their position of wanting American forces out of Korea. And there's a whole other issue of complex reasoning that we don't need to get into today. But basically, the memo was saying that the North Koreans wanted to tank South Korea and America's reputation within the global sphere by aggravating a violent altercation and then either blaming it on the the Americans and South Koreans and or having the Americans to South Koreans escalate and then using that. And we also know that throughout the whole year of 1976, North Korea had been blasting propaganda about aggression of American forces within the DMC. So maybe that was part of it. And maybe the North Koreans were trying to egg on some aggression. But that's purely speculation, not history. So we'll move on. Obviously, the head of the UNC Work Party, so the South Koreans and the Americans, did not stop trimming the tree when asked by the North Koreans. The man calling the shots was an American officer named Captain Arthur G. Boniface. He was 33 years old from New York City and nearing the end of his service on August 18, 1976. Some sources said that Captain Boniface went as far as to turn his back and completely ignore the North Korean officer when he demanded the trimming of the tree cease. The North Korean group was led by Senior Lieutenant Pak Chol, who had been nicknamed by the United Nations Command as Lieutenant Bulldog because he was so aggressive. Well, Pak didn't like being ignored. He sent a runner across the bridge of no return, who came back with a truck full of 20 extra North Korean soldiers. So now, the North Koreans are twice as heavy in numbers, and they've surrounded the UNC work party, who are they're just trying to prune this frickin' tree. Then, it's reported that Lieutenant Bulldog ordered his troops to, quote, kill those bastards, unquote, and the North Koreans attacked. They were already armed with clubs and crowbars because, remember, guns were extremely regulated in the GSA, and as the attack advanced, they picked up axes dropped by the UNC work party and used them against their original owners. The UNC party itself was not armed besides the tools necessary for the tree pruning, and so that, combined with being caught off guard, left them defenseless against the onslaught. The initial attack was only about 30 seconds. But the North Koreans wounded every single soldier in the UNC work party. Captain Boniface was surrounded, thrown to the ground by Lieutenant Bulldog, and bludgeoned by a group of North Koreans. He died in the attack. First Lieutenant Mark Barrett, the platoon leader and second officer in the UNC work party, was a second fatality. He was attacked by an axe his own crew had brought out and died on his way to the hospital. Like I said, within 30 seconds, the attack was over, but two UNC officers were dead, and the Korean peninsula was careening towards a resumption of war. So what and why? We have an unarmed group of people pruning a tree because it is obstructing the view of an observation post whose whole reason for existence is to view things. The North Koreans had been told about this tree pruning and had not shown any signs of discontent about it. So, why is it that all of a sudden, when the tree was being pruned, the North Koreans just like descended and attacked? In another paper that I read, I think it was the minutes for the the WASAG meeting, there was another general who said, like, wasn't it part of the agreement to keep this area clear and everyone was like, yeah, like I, we don't we don't know why they did this. Be-. So what happened? The story that I just told you was America's official stance. We'll go more in depth around the Wasag meeting that I mentioned earlier. But in that meeting, American and South Korean leaders came to believe that the attack had been planned, perhaps even ordered by North Korean leaders. So that might be the why. And we'll get more into the why later. But it also is really the most accurate telling of the story because the whole attack was filmed in two places, in Checkpoint 3 and Observation Post 5. Again, I'll be posting maps and other images on the Instagram, so go take a look at them so you can see where they are. One of the maps has a specific location of the tree, the Bridge of No Return, and both of these posts, so you can get a visual of where the attack was filmed. And so, yeah, there is video footage of the attack that clearly shows who the aggressors were. And let's not forget that no North Koreans were injured while two UNC officers were killed. Despite the evidence, North Korea had their own version of events. Here's the message North Korea media started airing shortly after the attack. Quote, around 10.45 a.m. today, the American imperialist aggressors sent in 14 hoodlums with axes into the joint security area to cut down the trees on their own accord, although such a work should have been mutually consented beforehand. Four persons from our side went to the spot to warn them not to continue the work without our consent. Against our persuasion, they attacked our guards en masse and committed a serious, provocative act of beating our men, wielding murderous weapons and, depending on the fact, that they outnumbered us. Our guards could not but resort to self-defense measures under the circumstances of this reckless provocation." The North Korean leader also went in front of other nations, condemning this American act of aggression, and called for both the removal of America from Korea and the dissolution of the UNC, the United Nations Command, which again I believe is the military armistice command, just of a different name. Which at the t- so at the time it was literally in charge of keeping peace in the DMZ. Meanwhile, the Mo- the Washington Special Actions Group meeting began. The WASAG was a high-level task force that coordinated U.S. actions during crises and especially fast-developing situations. It was made up of many high-level officials of many different departments to keep everyone on the same page. Some of the people that you would find at the WASAG were deputy secretaries of many, I would dare to say probably all, agencies, director of central intelligence, so the head of the CIA, and the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. So this group met to discuss the the Korean axe murder incident. That isn't what I called it earlier, but that's what I'm going to call it from now on. So sorry about that. (laughs) The first thing that they did is they increased the security level of American forces in South Korea to DEFCON 3. So if you're not familiar with the DEFCON or the defense conditions, there are five levels of DEFCON, five being the lowest or the standard level of readiness, and one basically being war, where you're ready at any second for an attack and to attack. So DEFCON 3 is the highest level of alert during peacetime. Once you've hit DEFCON 2, you're actively expecting an attack. So being at the standby level of alert after the Korean axe murder incident was not unimportant. And there's another word I want to use here, and I kept trying to think of it when I was scripting and I was hoping when I said it out loud it would come, but it hasn't. And I cannot for the life of me figure out what it is. So unimportant will have to do. It is significant. That's the word I was looking for. I was going to say not insignificant. (laughs) It is significant that the DEFCON level was was raised to DEFCON 3. That means they were really waiting for this to escalate. Okay, so with the Air Force ready to mobilize within 15 minutes under DEFCON 3, the WASAG now had to decide their retaliatory move. In the minutes to the August 18th meeting, Wasak said that they were, quote, virtually certain, unquote, that the attack was a planned operation from North Korea, like we discussed earlier. It was an election year, and Wasag believed North Korea was trying to sour the American public against having an American presence in Korea. They also said, quote, this morning's incident seemed deliberately intended to produce American casualties, unquote. Other notes from the meeting ensured that Wasag was convinced this was 100% an unprovoked intentional attack that resulted in two deaths. Technically, because of these facts, the group had every right to recommend retribution. But, as the meeting notes explained, quote, North Korea's next moves will undoubtedly be conditioned by the American reaction, unquote. So if the Americans were too aggressive, they could easily kick off a war. If they were too soft, North Korea could take that as permission to keep enacting controlled actions of violence. So how could America show their contempt for the ax murder incident, show their power and dominance without sparking a war? That's how Operation Paul Bunyan was born. Operation Paul Bunyan was concocted in the White House during crisis meetings held by President Ford. I assume that the operation came from some sort of recommendation from the WASAG, but none of the sources specified that. But that's what I I would assume. And I do know that General Richard G. Stilwell prepared and planned the operation in UNC headquarters in Seoul, which is the capital of South Korea. On August 21st, three days after the axe murder incident, at 0700 or 7 a.m., 23 American and South Korean vehicles named Task Force Vieira rolled into the Joint Security Area, headed for the poplar tree. Sixteen military engineers pulled from the 2nd Engineer Battalion and 2nd Infantry Division, equipped with chainsaws, were inside. Task Force Vieira was followed by two 30-man security teams from the Joint Security Force, armed with pistols and axes. One team secured the north entrance of the GSA via the bridge of no return. The second team secured the southern section of the area. These security teams were strengthened by 64 men from the South Korean 1st Special Forces Brigade. Between them, all funneled M-79 grenade launchers, pistols, claymore mines, and M-16 rifles. And that's just the ground forces. In the air were planes and helicopters of all sorts, from attack Cobra helicopters, McDonnell Douglas F-4, Phantom IIs, General Dynamics F-111s, 31s F3 F-3s probably F3s right <laughs> general dynamics F3s F3 fighter planes and many more i found lists i've found lists of all the different types of helicopters and fighters but there's like seven or eight different types up in the air at this time and i don't understand what any of them mean so i'm guessing that you won't really either so i just chose the coolest names and ones that like are maybe in top gun and we'll call that good just know that there was a crap ton of aerial support And then in addition to that, the aircraft carrier USS Midway had been stationed just offshore in case additional support was needed. And a little Easter egg for you all. If the USS Midway sounds familiar, it's because that's the aircraft carrier from episode two. It's a main character in the first half of that episode. Uh, It was the aircraft carrier that had been attacked off the Tonkin Gulf in Vietnam. Anyway. Altogether, Operation Paul Bunyan and Task Force Vieira consisted of 813 men. Without informing North Korea, Task Force Vieira's military engineers jumped out of their vehicles and took their chainsaws to the poplar tree. This day, three days after they had pulled the dead bodies of two of their officers out of the GSA, the UNC forces weren't trimming the tree. They were cutting it down. The United Nations command gave its people five minutes before alerting North Korea that a work party had entered the GSA to, quote, peacefully finish the work left unfinished, unquote, on August 18th. Now, I don't know if this alert was what actually told North Korea of Task Force Vieira's presence or if the one command post North Korea had opened at 7 a.m. saw them first. But with or without warning, it didn't take long for North Korean forces to show up. As the UNC military engineers hacked at the tree, Officer Bonifer and First Lieutenant Barrett had died over, 120 to 200 North Korean soldiers arrived on scene. They held machine guns and assault rifles, but they stood in stunned silence, looking on at Task Force Vienna, 600 men stronger than themselves, at the aerial backup flying overhead, and they didn't fire a shot. For 42 minutes, UNC military engineers worked to fell the tree, and for 42 minutes, North Korea looked on, silent and still. Finishing three minutes early, the military engineers cleared the poplar tree, leaving the 6-meter or 20-foot tree stump standing as a mark of their show of force as they exited the joint security area across the bridge of no return. Operation Paul Bunyan was a meticulously planned show of power by the United States and South Korea. Under demands from the South Korean leader Park Chung-hee, no aggressive moves were added in Operation Paul Bunyan. The only goal was to cu- the only physical goal, I should say, was to cut down the poplar tree that had caused all this contention. The operation was named after the mythical lumberjack Paul Bunyan as a sort of tongue-in-cheek title that, yes, this was a major military operation to just cut down a tree, but it was hopefully going to accomplish so much more. Mainly, it was going to show North Korea that they couldn't mess with the other side. And it seems like it had accomplished that. Sources say that North Korea was appropriately intimidated by Operation Paul Bunyan. The actions also seem to reflect that because there was no escalation after this. The biggest change after Operation Paul Bunyan was that the GSA was no longer a free reign area. The two sides' forces were separated and told to keep to their sides of the demarcation line. So there was no longer direct interaction between the two sides in any part of the demilitarized zone. The Joint Security Area's advance Camp was named Camp Boniface, after Officer Boniface, who had been bludgeoned to death on August 18th, 1976. A housing building inside the GSA was named the Barrett Readiness Facility after 1st Lieutenant Barrett, who was killed by axe on August 18th, 1976. Their deaths had been avenged, the UNC Operation Post got its view back, and Korea kept on with its unstable, tenuous seafire. Turns out, a tree can't start a war. All right, folks, that's it for today. Thank you so much for listening. I know that this was not the history of the first pop band like promised, and I'm sorry, but it was still kind of fun, right? I mean, we had Paul Bunyan, and we had a tree. We've got to talk a little bit about North Korea, which is super mysterious. I promise that next episode has nothing to do with the military, and that it's fun, and it's light, and there's no death. I'm pretty sure. I haven't done the research yet, but there shouldn't be any death. Um, but I shall not spoil the t- exact topic yet. You have to follow and you have to wait and you have to listen. But if you have a favorite topic in history that isn't often told, please share it. Email me at timecapsuletales.apodcast@gmail.com, at gmail.com. And if you want me to, I will totally name drop you. I mean, I would prefer to if you don't want me to say your name on the air, just let me know. Otherwise, you'll totally get full credit and then we'll have a fun story to listen to. If you enjoyed this story today, please rate, like, leave a comment, or a five-star review. I'm really trying to get this off the ground, so every interaction helps. Also, follow the podcast Instagram, pod. I post updates and episode resources. That's where you'll find the maps of the demilitarized zone and the joint security area from 1976, as well as pictures of the poplar tree before and after Operation Paul Bunyan. So head on over there and I'll see you next week as we open another time capsule for a niche tale in history.